This is Stir the Pot, a podcast all about food and the people that love it. I'm your host, Ed Kimber. So I need to start this week's episode off with a slight confession. When we were recording this episode, we were having a really great chat. It was going really well. And then 15 minutes in, I realized not a single bit of it has been recorded. Um, So that was the first. And this is the first time I've ever had to re-record an episode. Regardless, I think it turned out great. It's a really lovely conversation with Jesse Shefdeck about his brand new book, Tasty Pride, which is a collection of 75 recipes and stories from queer folk in the food world, myself included. In other news, I was super excited this week to have the very first copy of my upcoming book, One Tim Bakes, land on my door. Um, I'm so, so excited for you guys to see it. I'm so happy with the book. I think it looks so great and I'm really excited about all the recipes in there. Um, If you want a little bit more of a sneak peek and you don't follow me on Instagram, I posted a little video of it on there the other day. Um, In terms of what I've been cooking this week, I've still been using this time to play around with sourdough since we're in lockdown It seems like the perfect thing, and seemingly half the world's population agrees. Um, So if you have got your starter, and you are hooked, then I have a couple of fun recipes for you. So the first one is a chocolate chip cookie, and you use the sourdough discard to make the dough. And let me tell you, it may be my favorite cookie of all time. The starter adds this magical flavor, a tang, to the cookies that just go so well with the chocolate and just make something absolutely delicious. And the best thing is that using the discard means you're preventing so much waste, which is especially important when flour is so hard to come by right now. The second recipe, if you're listening to this on the day of release on Thursday, will be out tomorrow, and it is a sourdough pizza recipe. And it's designed to make pizzas kind of like you get in a restaurant, almost Neapolitan in style, but made with no fancy equipment, no pizza ovens, just a home domestic oven. And it is so, so good. So I can't wait for you to be making that as well. Also, next week, I think we'll be talking with a guest all about home cooking, cooking with family. So if you have any questions about what people are cooking right now, how to be smart cooking right now, Um, I will leave my email address down in the description box and you can send me any questions that you might have. You can also leave them with me over on Instagram at theboywhobakes. With that said, let's jump into this week's conversation with Jesse Shefdeck. So I will admit that we're recording recording, recording this all again because we just did, what, 20 minutes maybe? What time is it? Yeah, I mean, the thing did, is, I did 15 minutes, yeah. I'm sitting at home doing absolutely nothing, so I truly don't mind. A lockdown life means we can re-record an episode that didn't record. It's fine. Precisely. I've never had to do this before, so I don't know how this is going to feel as we talk about the same things we just talked about for 15 minutes, but it's fine. I got practice. At least, now. yeah, we have the practice. I know where to take the conversation and where, you know, it's fine. <laughs> so, <it>. Jesse, <laughs> so how bad. did food become the big thing in your life? Um, we so, can do this without you. I could just tell your story. It'd be fine. Should you try to retell it and I'll, I'll fact check you? <laughs> uh, you were standing on a stool. That, no, that's my story. 
I can't remember. <laughs> That's a, honestly, I have the words tool in one of the first sentences talking about my food story on Food 52. So it's oh, close enough. Maybe that is what I read. <laughs> so uh, growing up, my mom made candies. She mm. she had like a business license and she made fudge and caramels out of her home and she sold them around town. It was like her way of being able to support my sister and I while also staying home. The company was called Caramelot. And so I'd help make candies with her and then I started baking with her and I entered just like Founders Day bake-offs, like blue ribbon pie type things. Mm. Mind you, I grew up in the suburbs of Illinois, so... But they took that seriously, then I bet. Yeah, they take it pretty seriously. Midwest bakers. So I went to culinary school, but I studied culinary, not baking. Um, I kind of like rejected the whole idea of baking. I didn't call myself a baker. I, was, I always claimed I don't know how to bake. Mm. Not my thing. And so after college, I got a job in R&D, working menu development for this place that did menu consulting for a fast food chain like Domino's, Taco Bell place like that and i absolutely hated the work it was just (laughs) not the outlet i needed it was kind of soul-sucking and despite working there almost two years nothing i ever worked on ever got to a menu and never even got to screening and so wow that's yeah it literally didn't get anywhere depressing yes so i quit and then just a few years ago i transitioned into food media and i kind of finally feel like now i have like purpose and i'm proud of the work i'm doing and i kind of feel like i'm on the right track you said that you um were baking for kind of like uh, with blue pie that's not a term pie no blue ribbon we don't have this term in the uk i know what it means but i can never remember it blue is it's the ward you win right it's the kind of ribbon yeah i don't know if i just made that up but no, it's. A th- I'm sure I've heard about it. What were you making for these competitions as a teenager? Well, there was this one. Um, I made these like Linzer cookies for one mm-hmm. summer, and I entered them, and then I won like the cookie category, and then I won the whole category. And I was very young, and like the town knew my mom baked. So then <laughs> these like older bakers were like calling you a fraud, cheating. Yes, and then in the newspaper because. It's a small town. Like they ran that I won, and they're like, the youngest, and I'm only the youngest, but the only male that's ever won in the history of the town I grew up in. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Please tell me there's a picture. Oh, luckily, there's not a picture. There was no picture in the paper. No, but if you Google my name, it literally still pops up. It's like the Northwest Herald, like an article. I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> oh, you've been writing about food for all these years, and that still comes up at the top. <laughs> still on the top that's quite adorable (laughs) so after r&d why did i mean obviously i can totally understand i've known you for a few years and to me it feels like you're a very creative person in the kitchen and it feels like r&d for fast food would be the complete opposite the complete dearth of anything creative or interesting or fun and you'd have to be stuck within these guidelines so what was it that after you left that after you decided that was enough for me why did food media and not say going into a kitchen or going into another kind of b2b side of things why did food media become the next thing i think i was always drawn to first kind of the art side of food media Hmm. i still think writing is really hard and i don't even know if i'd call myself a writer and 
like when I worked at Bon Ave, we were right connected to the photo studio at the time. And it was just so cool seeing these stylists and photographers work. And I just kind of had this romantic idea that if I make a recipe and it's photographed and out in the world, that I would be just like so incredibly fulfilled, like seeing that out in the world. And like, I, I am, I still completely am. So it was just different. It was like a, a more like a physical piece of paper that is like mm-hmm. a piece of art versus like a piece of art that's consumed kind of. I completely get that. I think there's something very special. And I, I mean, I've done this job for 10 years now and I never get bored of seeing my work in print on a shelf, you know, in someone's home, you know, stained with coffee cups and whatever. I think seeing your work in that form is never boring. Yeah, and for sure. For me, when I was kind of starting out 10 years ago, I would do these photo shoots for for magazines and for books. And they were my always my favorite part because it would be this group of people who would come together to create something. And for me, who would work from home on his own in my kitchen, enjoying that part of it, like I'm a very happy person to work on my own, but to come together with these people and together bring this thing to life was always the most special days that I would get to work on because they were a just the most creative most collaborative and then to see that work you know two three months later again in print was always just something incredibly special so I do completely understand that yeah for sure it's it's cool that we aren't you know photographers or designers or you're a photographer I'm not I'm not a photographer or designer or Mm. but we get to work so closely with them that it's almost like that work becomes your work in a different way and it's like super fulfilling because I've always loved art, but I'm not necessarily like in the art field. Mm. I I have a real relation to that. I was so desperate to be in a creative or artistic career when I was a kid. I did my art A level, which is I'm not sure how what you, what you would call that. It's a you know a high school qualification, and I was so desperate to like be a graphic designer or do something that felt creative to me. But I was so bad everything creative really like I can't draw I think I've developed some skills now but when I was a kid I basically failed my RA level I did something very highbrow (laughs) that I like to joke the examiner didn't like from a political standpoint but I just think it was terrible (laughs) I love that that's like something I would do I was in like an honors painting class. I don't know how I got there. There's eight people in high school and I would consistently get like C's, C minuses, D's. And the teacher was like, oh, if you take this home and repaint it, you can get it regraded. And I'd always give it to my friend who ended up going to art school and she'd repaint it and I'd get like an A minus. And that's why you were in an honors class. And that's why I was in honors class. It's called cheating. Well, I, I respect guess, it. I respect it. I guess that is what it is. So... Obviously, today as we're talking is actually the release day for your new book, Tasty Pride. And I think you you told me about the book, you, me, and uh, Ben Mims, who I will get on this podcast one day soon. We had dinner in somewhere in Brooklyn. I don't know. I got off a plane and came straight to dinner. And you you told me about, literally, I was in a cat. I think I had my back. I remember. Uh, I was also like an hour and a half late to dinner. (laughs) We were too, (laughs) though. I felt terrible. but you mentioned this idea, and then I think it was maybe six months later, you emailed me and said, it's happening, give me a recipe, basically. Um, but in the intro to the book, 
you talk about something that happened in culinary school. And we'll talk about the book more in a bit. But it was something that I wondered whether it had an impact on your future career. And it was uh, one of the tutors you know, throwing out a homophobic insult at another student. And it's in the first paragraph of the intro to the book. And it feels like it was a really important moment. Because if you look at the work that you've done since, especially since moving into food media, you seem to really concentrate on people that are underrepresented in the food world. So, you know, people of color, women, queer people, you really seem to like like that story and like to, you know, shine a light on it. Was that something that made you think about that at the time or it developed into an objective? That wasn't a very good way of saying that. But. No, it was great. I think it's funny because that that moment in culinary school when the professor said that to my friend, it I I thought this is normal, this is kitchens. I thought mm. nothing of it. And it wasn't until almost I kind of found like my friends and like my family and started to write about these people that I'm like, wait, that's not how kitchens should be. And I if mm. there's culinary students who still have that professor right now, like this is not okay. Mm-hmm. And if we're in a position to be producing work that maybe like this professor would consume one day and he'd realize like, Oh, what I'm saying is Mm. not okay. I feel like that's very important. I completely agree. I think it's super important. I remember when I decided I was going to do this as a career and I was trying to figure out what that meant, whether I would work in kitchens, which is what I always thought I wanted to do. I always thought I wanted to be a pastry chef in a high end restaurant. It was my one aim and then I did a stage at a two mission star French restaurant. And it has a very high pedigree. The chef here who runs it is incredibly famous and was always incredibly nice to me. But in the kitchen, all you would hear was either super sexist comments or super homophobic comments. And it wasn't towards a person. It was just a constant. And it was being thrown around like it didn't mean anything. And I did that stage for, I think, two weeks. And I basically found the one gay person in the kitchen. I was like, you're my friend. Because I hated it. And it wasn't the work, although I found the work surprisingly boring. Um, I just didn't like the environment. And I instantly decided I could not spend any time in the kitchen if that's what my life would be. And that's why I went into media instead. Because I thought I would find more people that I could relate to. Um so I think I think it's really hard to understate how important something like this, like the work you do all the time. Like you look at the work you've done and it's piece after piece after piece. Like you wrote a whole um, column, I guess, for BuzzFeed that was about, you know, people's stories. And it was about, you know, queer people, about people changing, you know, things through soup. You know, I just think it was a really, it's an interesting thing and it's a great thing to be able to put that out into the world through a thing that we all understand, which is food, because I think we can all relate to it in some way. And I think we can take messages from it when we're not even realizing we're taking the message. You're going to make me cry. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that also, is my aim. No one has cried yet. <laughs> I think uh, when I wrote the intro to this book, I wrote it after I compiled all the recipes. Hmm. I knew that, the main question or main critique or criticism that people who don't necessarily understand it right away are going to say like, why does it matter if they're Mm -hmm. like, 
why does it matter who they sleep with as long as they can cook right or something? And the thing is like you, that is completely correct. It has, it does not matter mm-hmm. if I'm, if I'm ranking the 75 best chefs in America, but that is not what this project is. So I wanted to clearly state, these are the reasons why this book exists and it's important for a completely different reason. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I was thinking about, um, about Buzzfeed in general, really, where, this book was created where you used to work. And I was thinking about how BuzzFeed's audience and just the internet's audience for video effectively skews very young, really. Mm. And I think, you know, Tasty has such a big audience that I think I would have watched those videos when I was a kid, 100%, definitely. I would have watched them all the time. My niece watches them, I think, still. She's 18 now. She's probably angsty and doesn't doesn't watch cool things like that. Um but I would have watched those videos and it would have meant so much to me to then see this book as like a 13, 14 year old who really wanted to find his place in the world, thought baking might be it, but also thought that I couldn't work in the food world. I couldn't, didn't know where I could work. And so I think because this book will sell to people who are that age, I think that's an incredible thing. Like I genuinely, I, I talk about representation in, in media because I think it's super important but I don't think we see it in all types of media and we don't think we see it from a really wide range of people. And I think you look at the people who are in this book and they're people from all different backgrounds, different races, different ages, different genders. And I think it's such a good representation of just like everybody makes food, doesn't matter, but this is why it also does matter and why you should think about it. And I think that's just, I think there's such value to that. Yeah, it's like people really underestimate like the size and the importance of the BuzzFeed audience, mm. like that is America for like for in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. this book, because who we're writing it with and partnering with, it's going to get into the hands of people who won't see these kind of messages. And oh, like, I think that's really cool. And I didn't realize that I think until like halfway through writing, I'm like, okay, wait, this could really help some people. Yeah, no, completely. I think, I just, I can see this, you know, this will be a book that probably is on, you know, mass market cookbook stores and, you know, supermarkets and, you know, big shops and people will see this and pick it up and see themselves represented. And I think it's rare that everybody gets to see themselves in all types of media. And I think when I was a kid, I didn't care if there was a sports person that was gay because I didn't like sports. I, I didn't have that thing that represented me. And I think something like this is such a cool thing. Um, before we talk about more about the book, I would love to talk about something that I'm fascinated by at BuzzFeed. When you were there, you did a lot. You did video content a lot of the time, and you were. I kind of always think of you as doing those um, celebrity battles, like which yes. celebrity recipe is the best. And so I have two questions. Yes. Uh, but the first one is about the audience. Okay. Because YouTube's audience is so young. Mm-hmm. and vicious mm-hmm. a lot of the time yes did you ever feel like under pressure or stressed by just how vicious the audience online can be because you were putting yourself out there yes um so when i entered buzzfeed i never wanted to be in videos i never that's not i came on as a writer i never thought i was going to be and it was really really hard for me to be comfortable on mm. camera i think i've only now just kind of i'm still not comfortable but more comfortable and mm. yeah the people are pretty vicious they would like 
you could scroll endlessly through YouTube reading comments talking about me. And so I stopped. But then towards the end, I think when I got more comfortable, maybe and mm. like stopped caring, the comments got nicer, which is funny. But it definitely, definitely falls into that trope like internet people are mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's really difficult because it's really hard to see the person behind the comment. Mm. But then you have to kind of imagine who that person is who is willing to write vicious, nasty things. But then sometimes you're like, you'll see... They're like 13 years old. They're always like 13 years old. And it, it blows my mind. When I was 13, I wasn't sending like really rude, nasty messages to people. But there's something about commenting online that just is wild. And I think to be on a platform like BuzzFeed where the audience is huge, I don't know. I, the pressure of that is crazy. So congratulations yeah. for surviving. <laughs> I survived BuzzFeed videos. <laughs> so Literally. my second question is, did any celebrities ever respond? Because the video that you did mm. a lot was where you would take, you know, four or five celebrity recipes and make them all and basically taste test them. And the celebrities were always wild. Like people you would never think would be cooking. And you're like, oh, Okay. You're making sure. mac and cheese. So did they any of them ever respond and say, I'm not happy with how you made my recipe? Uh, yes. Um, really? I thought you were literally going to say no. Because well, I the, thought they... the best story I had was that I was writing a scrambled egg one and Chrissy Teigen was part of the lineup and Chrissy Teigen mm. came to BuzzFeed and I was writing it when she walked past. And the person who's like, like walking her around as my friend. And she's like, oh, Chrissy, Jesse's writing the showdown and your recipe's in it. And Chrissy Teigen goes, did I win? And I said, no. And she goes, god damn it. And she walks away. <laughs> wow. I mean, her eggs were good. Been, it could have been way worse. No, she's cool. She was really nice. I think she came in second. She has good eggs. Okay, good. Yeah. I don't know if you can or would be willing to say, what was the worst celebrity recipe you had to make for that? Oh, God. Because some of them were wild with the weird things people would throw into, like, the most simple of recipes. God, there's... Oh, God. Um, so many of them are... No, literally, I blacked it all out. So many <gasps> are so bad. Um, there was this mac and cheese that Rihanna made. That I think was, I remember that one. Yeah, it. I don't know why it's sticking out to me, but I had to go to this specialty grocery store and get, like, the special hot sauce, but then you put, like, ketchup in it and, like... I don't know, I think onions, and it's just very strange. Did uh, Riri's fans come for you? <laughs> no, I, I actually wish they would. I feel like that would be a really funny story. <laughs> yeah, that would be a great story. Absolutely. Um, so going back to your kind of childhood a little bit and your cooking with your mom, apart from the caramels, were you actively cooking as a kid? Was it something you did from a young age? You started cooking in restaurants from a really young age, so I'd assume so. Yeah, so yeah, I started cooking in restaurant kitchens at 16. But I think I always just cook with my mom. She just, my mom's a really good cook and she mm. enjoys cooking. She like, she does project-based cooking, you know, like for stress relief. Like right now she's baking up a storm. So I kind of got that from her. And then my dad is just like a terrible cook. And he would really? put, yes, he is obsessed with like frozen peas, curry powder and raisins. And he puts them in everything that like, <laughs> And it's very strange. So 
maybe it was just like that juxtaposition between my mom and my dad i'm like okay i have to be more like my mom when i grew up i mean that's that's very fair i have to say i felt slightly seen then because we have a big bag of frozen peas and we often put it in everything because my boyfriend keeps saying to me we need to eat more green things so it's just let's add some frozen peas to this and it, it bores me silly i'm like you're ruining my cacio pepe my god my dad also he like puts all these spices together and then he dubs it his curry powder and he puts it like <laughs> on anything that doesn't taste good he just puts like four tablespoons like on top of it and like doesn't cook it in and that's like his way of cooking Ooh, great delicious very nice yeah um when you said you started cooking in a restaurant at 15 was that legal to work in a restaurant in the kitchen at 15 no so i was working at a pizza place when i was 15 as a busboy and i wanted to make pizza and they said you can't it's like against law but then the sushi place next door opened is like a kaitan belt sushi place and i interviewed and they let me work in the kitchen so i was like 16 and i just like was a prep cook wow I'd never actually worked in a kitchen in a paid way. I've done pop-ups since, like in the last few years, but I've never actually worked a line or worked on a station. I did it once, but as a start, well, a few times as a stage and hated it. So it was just never, I don't, I don't know if I have the patience. I think I get bored very easily. And the thing I found about being in a kitchen, especially as a junior cook, was I was doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And I couldn't segment oranges for a full day ever again. It was the most boring thing ever. Um, So since you have left um, BuzzFeed, you're now at The Kitchen, which is, I guess, in some ways a more established food brand, whereas, you know, BuzzFeed is a multi, you know, branded platform. The Kitchen has been around for I don't even know how long, forever, it seems like, as a more mm. established food site. How are you finding the difference of being at a very food-orientated rather than, I guess, what I think of as a more celeb-orientated or easygoing? That's not a term, but that's what we're going to go with. <laughs> no, it feels really good. It feels nice to be somewhere that has one thing they do and they do it really well. Mm. And I feel like it's nice to have coworkers that we also all – like food and work in food so when we talk to each other it's really nice whereas at buzzfeed you know there's only three food writers when i worked there and then everyone else wow. was like what you're saying just like generalist or mm. you know pop culture or news so it was and the vibe was much much different and they're both fantastic but it's really refreshing to be in a place where we all love food and like if i have issues or i i have ideas like we can bounce things off each other Mm. I think having that sort of support is forever useful. I think I don't have colleagues in that way. I have my four walls, but through years of doing this, I have those people that you can call on and chat to. And I think having those people you can, like you say, bounce ideas off is just the most invaluable thing. Obviously, before you left BuzzFeed, you created Tasty Pride. So let's talk about the book a bit more. Um, The book is out today in the uk or if you're listening to it in the us it's already out it came out on tuesday so where did the idea come from yeah so so when i first started at buzzfeed the first pride month rolled around and i started to write some like q a's and some interviews with like queer members of the food community and i found it really fulfilling and i thought it was really important having it on this site so then 
don't know, a few months after Pride, I sat down with my editor. I'm like, I have a really pipe dream that's never going to happen. And I pitched to her. Her name was Melissa. And Melissa's like, this is a great idea. I'm going to talk to Jonah about it. And she literally went straight to the top. She pitched wow. it. And it got approved. And uh, the whole process between approval and like actual book deal. But that was the process. So it was really cool because the cool thing about BuzzFeed is that like for everything that it has, you know, that people talk about working there is difficult. The fact that there's so much freedom and you can pitch things and just do them right away is incredible. Yeah, I think I can't think of many brands that would, especially food brands that would be willing to do something like this. Even today, I just can't think of many who put their name to it or more put an investment into it because, Mm. you know, putting together a book isn't the cheapest thing and is a huge time investment, especially on your behalf. So I think that says a lot about the brand that they're willing to do that. Um, Mm. What was the process of, you know, curating and writing the book like? Because there's how many people in here? 75 different people? Yeah, there's 75 and a few are like business partners or couples. So more like 80, 80 Mm -hmm. something, maybe 82. Um, It was honestly just like a lot of texting and asking Mm -hmm. for favors and introductions. Like I remember... um, Brian Hoffman, our friend from Big From Scratch, I was like, I want Jesse Tyler Ferguson in the book. And, <laughs> and so I texted Brian. He's like, he's like, hold on. And within like 10 minutes, he like emailed me and connected with his team. And then he was like, yeah, I'll do it. That's great. Yeah. What recipe did Jesse give? Uh, he gave this bowl. It's like a turkey bowl and it has um, Brussels sprouts and it's, it's really pretty. It has like a nice purple background. I see. I think the one thing about the book that you'll see the second you look at it is it is incredibly colorful. I mean, it's very clear where the design palette comes from. And you have such, I think it's a very striking cookbook. And I think it has a very different look from most books because it's not about these subtle shades or like lifestyle. It's like, here's some color. (laughs) It's like hitting you in the face of color. And I think it's a really joyful thing because of that. I think I remember when we were doing the book at the time, I, I think you sent me 300 emails trying to get me to send you an invoice because I kept saying, don't pay me, just give the money when you're like, I'm not I allowed refused. to. I was like, everyone is being paid. I, no matter what, I need to stand by this. <laughs> I'm I sure I have Anthony. been paid. I paid Jesse Tyler and Anthony. Oh, that's really funny. I, I can just imagine Anthony going, I need that check, please. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Dear me. What was the the most fulfilling part of it? I'm assuming it's just seeing the finished product because that always seems like it's the final thing. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe shooting the book honestly was because I had all these stories and recipes that I feel like only I knew because I was working on them. And then I could share them with the photo team. Mm. And it was, it was so great because the photo team was incredible that I worked with. And they were just like so passionate and emotional about the project itself. So I would read the head note. The prop styles would be like, oh, they said this about the story. Let's grab wow. this prop. So like if you look closely at the, they're all really thought through. And it was it was really joyful kind of being like, oh, my God, the art's actually incredible. This is This is happening. And like the people I think will feel good about how the recipes look. That's really, I like that a lot. I think that's really cool. Um, I think there is something, I, I think I should explain what the book is a bit more. It's a book on, 
it's not just recipes though. So the thing that's really special about the book is there's 75 recipes, but there's also 75 stories, and it's a, one the individual or the couple or whatever their story or a part of their story, and I think those are what give the recipes a really interesting context because I think so often. You know, it's hard for a cookbook to have, especially a book that's not huge. You know, it's on the smaller side. It's really hard to get a narrative or to get something really meaningful in there without it being, you know, a travel log or a personal memoir filled with, you know, recipes. So I think that the book has so much narrative and so much meaning in there is really impressive and it's such an eye-opening thing to read those different stories from such an interesting group of people that i think it's a really interesting special thing yeah i think when we were first concepting it i'm like it has to be recipes and stories because without that context like why are we collecting these recipes like besides the charity portion like what is the point of this is there a thesis is there something that holds it together and i think like now it has this cohesive joyfulness and Mm. like story that's really cool you can turn one page and it's like heartbreaking and you can turn a page and it's like hilarious and it's cool to see how like queerness and identity plays a role like in food in such different ways for people yeah completely like talking about um the story i gave mine's kind of uh, not overarching but it talks about my kind of path to happiness i guess and it was to do with the fact that I I came up fairly late, I guess. Well, I was 19 at the time, so it's not super late, but it felt really late to me. And I it was one of those people where I'd done my degree. I had a political science degree and had no clue what I wanted to do with it. Um, and so I drifted after university. And Bake Off became the thing that helped me really put a magnifying life uh, magnifying life magnifying glass on my life and make me think about what I wanted and I always knew that food was something I liked and would have loved to have made a career in but it wasn't until doing the show that I realized I could but something that didn't I'm not even sure I wrote it in the story or whether it got edited out I can't remember I remember having a conversation with um Sue Perkins who was one of the presenters at the time who was also gay and we would have these chats off camera when we weren't filming. And I was saying about how I was a really shy, anxious person and it wasn't super happy. And she basically said, this is a massive opportunity for you. This is something that can make you, you know, it can change your career, your life, whatever you want it to do. So kick it into gear. And it was a real moment for me of clarity going, I need to try and figure out what I want from the rest of my life and try and pursue it. And I think then deciding to enter food and finding people that I loved and was so happy about working together with and finding that sense of community made me way happier than when I was trying to fit into whatever other community I was trying to fit into and realizing that I didn't need to be the skinny or the muscle guy or whatever. I could just be like, yeah, I make cakes. <laughs> That's Love fine. It. Love it. And I think, you know, my, my story doesn't feel, to me at least, super, I don't know, super different from so many other people's story. Um, so I love the fact that there is like, I'm going to call it a basic story like mine. And then there's, you know, really emotional, really funny. I think it's a really interesting mix of stories that, Whoever you are, you'll be able to find something 
to relate to in that collection of stories. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, your story is not basic. It's just incredibly <laughs> relatable for people. You know, if, if people who aren't queer read this book, they're going to be able to relate to your story. And queer people are able to relate to your story in like so many different facets of their life. So I think your story is incredibly important. Thank you. Yeah, I, mean, I, I relate to it too. <laughs> it was it was funny because I I always get nervous when I get asked to write those sorts of things. I was once asked to write my coming out story for an anthology years ago, um, and it's not an uncomfortable. It's more an uncomfortable uncomfortable sense about being vulnerable because my kind of work that I do isn't super personal although I'm trying to make it more and more about that sort of thing um and so when I'm asked to kind of be more vulnerable and show a different side of myself I find it really tricky because I don't know how to articulate myself in the same way because I don't spend my day talking about it I spend my day talking about sugar and butter and I can talk about it forever and so it really makes me think about how I want to articulate my story and I think it was a really interesting process just for me to sit down and it's not a long story I think it's maybe 100 200 words um but it was just a really interesting thing to sit back for myself and to reflect on that period of my life and how food is more important than I sometimes think it is to me myself and like food is the (laughs) the main thing in my life like it's literally surrounding me literally surrounding me there's food on the floor behind me because we've run out of storage space (laughs) but i think i think it's it's really it was a really nice process just for me personally just to be able to kind of you know take an hour two hours and think about how food has helped me form my identity and how it's made me comfortable with my identity because it was it was like a a window into a world and helped me find that community and i think finding community is one of the hardest things to do i think when you do it it's like you've been looking for that all along even though you didn't really know that's what you were looking for if that makes sense i'm not sure no for sure totally and it's like when you were writing that story it's funny because on the other side what i would consistently tell people it's when people would send me their stories i feel like they're just like opening their diary and being like so vulnerable with me (laughs) and it was like emotionally exhausting on my side to like read these stories yeah it was like sometimes i just burst into tears and they sent it to me i'm like oh my god um and it was just really incredible because i feel like now all 75 people in the book i'm like you're my friend like you're part of my community you're part of my chosen family i could i could hit up any of them because we have Mm -hmm. this like really personal bond just through editing that head note and recipe together yeah definitely i think i think my from memory, my head note originally had more about my kind of perceived body dysmorphia and how I never thought I would fit in with a gay community because I never felt I was, you know, the right look for that community. And how there were, I think it's still now, I can't remember, there was a story about how I would walk into Bake Off the first day and I was this incredibly shy nervous like 23 year old I can't remember and I remember thinking (laughs) I literally have this memory and it's such a weird memory I remember walking into the tent which we had to do like 10 times because it's tv and you do everything 20 times and I remember thinking oh my god I'm gonna be the fat one that's literally what I remember thinking if you watch the show 
it was 10 years ago now, and I look like an emaciated 10-year-old. I looked like mm. a prepubescent 10-year-old, and I was 23. I had mm. no idea of the sense of how I looked, and that had been something that I dealt with for years. And so to be able to then find a career that I loved, and I think through finding that career, it enabled me to not become the person I, wa- I, I wanted to be, but just be the person I was in a way I felt I couldn't do at home I think food gave me that avenue to go, okay, I'm actually like who I am in many different ways. And I think it's a really important thing to go through. And I think food can be that for many people, even if you're not doing food as a, you know, a job, it can be that thing, that sense of community, or it can be the thing that helps you just in many ways in your life. I think it's a very important thing. I'm waffling. For sure. No, I think, you being on this show in itself probably helped so so many people just seeing you be yourself too. I'm sure you have no idea how many people you helped. I know how people didn't like it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the BuzzFeed effect. <laughs> it's the internet yeah. effect. Um, yeah, I was very lucky, effect. I think. I think I was very lucky because um, back then the internet wasn't as nasty a place. So there was a lot of it. But I can't imagine how people who put themselves on TV these days in that sense, it's truly awful and i think people like to look for anything that's you know different or a perceived weakness and i think unfortunately that means it's a tough place to be if i was 23 doing it now in 2020 maybe not this year because it might not exist but um you know i think i would have said no i don't think i could have dealt with the pressure that the internet has for people i've had 10 years of being able to build up a thick skin most of the time where people can you know send me nasty emails and i'm i just laugh because some of them are, you know, good. Some of them are really good. oh i i sometimes i literally will look over my boyfriend on the settee the sofa in the evening and go read this read it now because it's it. it's the best thing and i find maybe this is cruel but i find nothing better than when someone tries to troll you and it's spelt wrong it mm, makes me really great. happy yeah it's really nice it's really happy and i'm like you know not a good speller, but it makes me really happy. Yeah, you're like, I discredit this. <laughs> yes, this has no value. This has no value whatsoever. Um, so we're going to get to our uh, second section, which hopefully um, won't make either of us cry. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's called the shopping list. And basically, it is a very simple premise. I'm going to give you a few quick fire answers. And you can answer as in-depth as you want. You can, you can be as flippant as you want. It's completely mm. fine. It's your opinion. Doesn't mm. matter. Um, so, sweet or savory? Savory. Savory I thought to you were eat. Say that. Yeah. Yes, to eat. Because do you actually have a, a huge sweet tooth? No. <laughs> I didn't think you did, and I, 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 I wondered if it was because you grew up around sugar. You know, with a mom who made candies for a living whether it was just something you didn't have or you didn't like or you just got sick of. Um, I wondered whether you say savory. Do you have a sweet tooth? Yes. You do? It's terrible. It's awful. It's, yeah. I think it's the the reason I'm good at my job. Honestly, that, yeah, I'm sure. It's it's unhealthy. Um, It's a problem, but it's fine. I love it. Um, So you uh, work in New York. Do you live in New Jersey or do you live in New York normally? I live in Astoria, Queens. Astoria, so just Queens. like yeah, it's like twenty minutes outside the city. 
Okay, so as a New Yorker, then I wrote that, and I was hoping I could still use it. Yeah, you can. Do, do you, uh, <laughs> I said I kept calling an Erin McDowell in New York, and I'm like, no, she lives in Jersey. She's from Jersey. Um, so as a New Yorker, bagels or black and white cookies, and do you actually eat either? Bagels and bagels is a recent thing. I did not grow up with them. Really? I did not have them in Illinois, really, and I just kind of discovered bagels maybe the past two years. <laughs> How long have you lived in New York? I don't know. I think black and white cookies are gross. They're like weird. They're just like little cake blobs. So I have this thing where I want black and white cookies to be amazing. Yeah. I just think they're so cute looking and I want them to be delicious. And I'm yet to have a good one. They're not. I, they're, it doesn't exist. I wanted to pitch a video idea to the New York um, tourist board, I guess. And I wanted to come to New York, find like taste test like 10 of New York's best black and white cookies and then recreate the recipe in my own kitchen. But I, last time I was in the city, I tried some. I was like, I can't find any that I like. They're all just mm-hmm. dense and kind of old and stale tasting. So I was very disappointed. Yeah, I so think where, they're just bad. I, I would agree. Where would be your bagel spot in the city? Where's your favorite? Hmm. You know, I don't know if I've found one, but um, my roommate, like my roommate's ritual every weekend is she goes out Saturday night. Mm-hmm. So then Sunday morning, she needs a bagel. And that's how I discovered bagels because I would walk with her to get mm. a bagel. At the, and it's called Brooklyn Bagel in Astoria and her good bagels. And I got them all because my roommate was hungover. <laughs> I think that's a good excuse to find any food. That's, I mean, it some works. of the best things hangovers. It's completely fine. For sure. Um, so as someone who grew up with caramel but makes a lot of cookies, caramel or cookies? I have to say, I have to say caramel. <laughs> in case your mom's listening. <laughs> yeah, literally, I can't. When was the last time you made some caramels? You know, I'm probably, you that, with your mom now. Uh, probably that Food 52 essay. <laughs> <laughs> and when was the last time you made a cookie? I don't know. Did like you post one two like days two ago? days ago? Yeah, yeah literally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you, you, I think you should make someone get out of your mom's bad books that you're going to be in now that she knows you don't make a recipe every week. Because you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, white chocolate or dark chocolate? Oh, uh... Oh, oh, I like both. You see, it's interesting because so many food people, I think, are super snobby about white chocolate. They love to kind of like look down on it and think it's a bad thing. Whereas you've done so much with white chocolate, especially caramelized white chocolate, which is like one of the best things ever. It's good. I like the texture. I like that it's like it has that same texture as milk chocolate, but it's just, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it feels like luxurious. Yeah, definitely. If there's um, I don't think you have it in the US. There's a um, a candy bar called Caramac, and it's if you give anybody caramelized white chocolate and they haven't tried it, they'll be like, "Oh, it's posh Caramac." And I'm not oh. really sure what Caramac is, but it's been around since like the 50s. Um, but it looks just like caramelized white chocolate, but it's so so sweet and has none of that kind of toasty flavor. So it's <laughs> it's, it's posh and like, better Caramac. Next time I come to New York, I'll bring you some Caramac. Yes, please. So that is the end of our main podcast, but we're going to jump over to our Patreon. So if you aren't subscribed to that, you can join at patreon.com forward slash the boy who bakes. And we're going to do a little extra bonus section. Um, Jesse's book, Tasty Pride, is out already. You can go and buy a copy. Um, The book is donating $50,000 to uh, GLAD, which is a charity in the US. So by buying the book, you are doing a good thing. And also it's full of really great stories. So you should all go buy a copy. But... Thank you for joining me today. Thank this you is, for I, having I, me. 
I always say getting to chat to people is my the, the funnest part of my day because I love my boyfriend dearly, but it's really nice to speak to other humans. <laughs> I'm sure. No, 100% same. So thank you for that. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Actually, like- no worries. It was great. <laughs>